BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Part of my summer reading is a book called The Ice Pick Surgeon, Murder, Fraud, Sabotage, Piracy, and Other Dastardly Deeds Perpetrated in the Name of Science. I found it in the true crime section of my bookstore, but it's written by an author we've had on the show before and someone whose work I follow because he's a great science writer, Sam Keen. You know, we had this uh, book uh, on our kitchen table and uh, my partner, Adam, walked by and he says, oh, you can't read that kind of stuff. That just gives science a bad name. You know, we need to lift science up, especially now as as, uh, it's so important in what's happening in the world. But I wanted to explain to him, and I can't wait for him to listen to this episode, that in fact, that's Sam's goal is to actually demonstrate how there might be some bad actors within the scientific realm, but that just shows us how important science is. And we need to learn from the ways in which science steers people wrong and in terms of making it better. Sam Keen is a New York Times bestselling author of a number of other books, including The Bastard Brigade, Caesar's Last Breath. The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, and many more. He's written, he's uh, won many awards for his writing, and he's been featured on Radiolab and All Things Considered and Inquiring Minds. And his own podcast, The Disappearing Spoon, is also high up on the iTunes science charts. Sam Keen, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me back. So we had you back in uh, our very first year, episode 38, where we talked about uh, brains and the various stories that you had uncovered of people whose brains are are different and what we can learn about our own from them. And here you are telling us these true crime stories about scientists. So tell me, uh, beyond just the fact that there's these salacious details that we're all super interested in, what made you want to write this particular book? Well, you're right. These salacious details were definitely uh, an appeal of it. I love true crime. I think a lot of people have this sort of lurid fascination with true crime. And the idea that you could write a true crime and lead science book was really appealing to me. But the cases I'm dealing with here are not just scientists who happen to commit crimes. So something like Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos, 
she was out to make money and to be famous. And that's sort of a typical everyday motivation for committing a crime. What really fascinated me and these stories that I really focus on in this book are scientists who oftentimes start off with good intentions. And what happens is they get so obsessed with some topic or idea that they then take things way, way too far and start trampling ethical boundaries and even committing crimes in the name of science. So they're committing these crimes in order to do better science, they think. And that that really fascinated me because that pursuit of knowledge usually is a good thing. It's what drives scientists, their curiosity, their desire to know. But in these cases, that desire to learn has been twisted in this dark way. And so that tension between those two things about the drive behind science and how it got twisted in dark ways was what really appealed to me and made me want to write the book. Yeah, you know, it's it's not high on the list of motives that you usually see in in kind of cop dramas, which I'm a big fan of. Um, you know, you don't you don't usually have the science. It's not a grubby detail like money or fame. Or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, you know, usually it's love or like lust or or money or fame. Exactly. Is it something that's different about these individuals, or do you think that? Like, do we all have this kind of thirst for knowledge, but for most of us, it's just not as big a motivator as some of these other major drives of bad behavior? That's something I really try to discuss in the book is I look at the psychology of the people and try to find out what motivated them and what they had in common. So I do think it's a combination of flaws that they had. They were especially prone to tunnel vision, for instance, where everything else gets blocked out. They had kind of a ruthless streak in a lot of cases, and they were, you know, willing to employ euphemisms or kind of talk around the deeds that they were actually doing to kind of put a sort of an emotional distance between themselves and their victims. But again, in some of these cases, the scientists did start off with good intentions. And to me, that's a bit of a scary thing. Because it shows that they, they weren't just monsters. They weren't just, you know, running around doing awful things from the beginning. There's a little bit of that in some cases. But in other cases, again, they did have good intentions. So I think it's a combination of personality traits, but also people ending up in bad circumstances where they did not have anyone overseeing them. No one was looking over them. Uh, and they just kind of were able to do whatever they wanted because of that lack of oversight. Yeah, you know, that's that's what I think one of the insights too that 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 you come up with in the book or that I you know reading the book where it can really sort of help us understand what kinds of checks and balances we should be putting in, you know, when we work with scientists or or when we're we're as a scientist or you know ourselves building a lab or or so on. In your introduction, you you write only rarely do scientific villains emerge fully formed. You know, in most cases, morals erode slowly. People break bad step by painful step. Um, so I wanted to actually have you illustrate this with one case that you can tell us a little bit more detail about. The one that I thought might be particularly appropriate was the one from Harvard, the anatomist. But I, I wondered if, if there's another one or if that's the one that you, you think kind of shows this well. One story that really pops to mind for me when you're talking about that kind of breaking bad, step by step especially, is the title story, actually, which is Walter Freeman the uh, so-called ice pick lobotomist. Because when Freeman was starting off in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, he was interested in people at mental asylums. 
So people who had psychiatric disorders, psychiatric diseases, things like that. We go back to that time, every single, even remotely big city in the United States had an insane asylum and they were terrible places. People were locked inside them in straitjackets. And they were, there's really a sense of futility about these places because doctors had no way to treat them. There were zero drugs, zero effective treatments. There was zero they could do for these people. And Freeman decided that he was going to try to save these people. I do think he had a bit of a messiah complex later where he was going to be the savior of these people. But he started off with very good intentions in that he decided he wanted to help these people. He was just disgusted at the fact that, you know, these lives are being wasted, the futility of it all. And so what he decided to do is he decided to develop a procedure that had been invented in Europe that eventually became known as the lobotomy. And it sounds kind of crazy to say, but at the beginning, for the reasons I mentioned, that basically there were no other treatments, lobotomies were defensible as a last resort for the very worst cases. To the people who were, you know, couldn't even let another person near them because they would attack them. They couldn't go outside. They couldn't have a meal with somebody, do these basic everyday human things. And Freeman and a neurosurgeon developed a procedure where they would go in and they would sever certain connections in the brain. And in some cases, it did actually calm people down. And when it was done like this as a surgery of last resort, and they were being responsible about it, having a neurosurgeon in there and doing maybe one of these operations per week, they did end up helping people. So that's why I say it was a defensible procedure at first. But Freeman's big flaw was that he was too ambitious. And again, he had that messiah complex. And you see him start to chafe against the restrictions of having to have a neurosurgeon around to do them and the slow pace of them, that he could only do one per week. So he started getting a little bit more radical, started pushing out into marginal cases. Probably the most famous marginal case was John F. Kennedy's sister, Rosemary Kennedy, who ended up being pushed into a lobotomy against her will, mostly by her father, Joseph Kennedy, and ended up in an asylum for the rest of her life because of it. The family basically forgot about her, considered her very shameful, and would not allow anyone to know about where she was or even other family members to visit her. JFK actually had to secretly visit her on one of his presidential or his presidential um, campaign in 1960 because it was such a shameful thing, they thought. And eventually, Freeman developed what became known as the ice pick lobotomy, where he actually used an ice pick that he had found in his kitchen drawer to perform a quick sort of jiffy lube version of these lobotomies. It was an outpatient neurosurgery. After that, essentially, the wheels came off where he was just going full bore and doing up to 25 of these lobotomies a day, traveling around the country, driving from asylum to asylum, uh, doing as many as he could to try to, as he thought, save these people. So you really see him start off with good intentions, but as his frustrations built and as he got more ambitious, you see him go bad step by step by step. And, you know, this this also speaks to another point you make in your introduction, that unethical science is often ipso facto bad science. (laughs) And I think that everybody knows now or most people know now that, you know, lobotomy is kind of a bad word, even though there are some times in which actually removing part of a lobe in the brain does help a person. So like in epilepsy, for example, people who don't respond to pharmacological treatments of epilepsy 
and where the seizures are continuing to give them all kinds of problems, you can sometimes do a surgery that takes out the part of the brain that starts the seizures. And it's called, it's usually in the temporal, it's called temporal lobectomy. Yeah. And, and, and like you're saying, though, it's, a, it's, it's sort of the last ditch effort. And they've done all the other tests and things. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think even even so, people still think, oh, that's just like those are cruel neurosurgeons who do that kind of work. And they're, people are kind of taken aback by it. And I think a lot of it is because of how um, Freeman kind of just took his power to an extreme. Hey, the shadow, his shadow is really uh, still looming over a lot of that work today. So you see that in a lot of cases in the book, actually, where these stories aren't all safely buried in our past. You see the echoes and the shadows that are still affecting how science gets done now. So one of the other um, sort of things that you talk about that kind of drive people in this direction come from the, some, of, some of the systemic issues related to how science is treated in our society. So, for example, you suggest that people start to cross ethical boundaries when they feel excessive pressure. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe give us an example of when that happened. So a couple of stories actually come to mind where you see this excess pressure, usually in these cases from rival groups. So one that pops to mind is the Thomas Edison story. And we all sort of know the, uh, the Edison story. I think we all learned about him as sort of this American saint. And then nowadays, there's actually been a pushback of him where we talk about the rivalry with uh, Nikola Tesla. That's been kind of a, a debated, uh, kind of a heated topic online, especially. But what I focus on in the book is actually Edison's rivalry with George Westinghouse. And Tesla was kind of tied up in that, but it's a little bit different in that I don't think a lot of people realize how ruthless Edison was in pursuing his interests. So in short, Edison had a lot of patents on what's called direct current. So it's a form of electricity generation, whereas Westinghouse and Tesla were very involved in alternating current. And Edison had all these big plans, essentially, to wire up cities with direct current, even though direct current had some flaws and wasn't as good as alternating current for certain applications. But Edison was determined to win and got himself involved in some pretty nasty situations where he was actually trying to prove, supposedly, that AC was much more dangerous than direct current. So he actually staged demonstrations where he would have horses and dogs, and he would torture them with electricity, often until they died because of this, simply to discredit his rivals for this scientific field. Edison also, toward the early parts of his life, was an opponent of the death penalty. He decided that was a bad way to deter crime, and he was opposed to the death penalty. He did not want to see it. He wanted to ban it. But later, someone brought to his attention that possibly if they used electricity, they could kill people with an electric chair, essentially. And at first, Edison said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm opposed to the death penalty. But when he realized that they could rig the electric chair with his rival's alternating current, well, then suddenly Edison decided he was for the death penalty and he was for the electric chair. So he completely threw off his morals and he was one of the driving forces behind the electric chair. And the pressure really comes in because Edison was facing this rivalry. He knew that there was a lot of glory at stake because he was one of the rare people who saw just how revolutionary electricity was going to be. And he wanted to get credit for that. He wanted to be the big American hero. And so he was willing to do whatever it took 
in order to discredit his rivals and to get uh, the glory for himself. You know, we're still paying a huge cost for this rivalry in our own energy usage and sort of, you know, in some ways, you can imagine it being a big factor if if you multiply it by all the homes in the world where we're constantly switching between DC and AC and then back from AC to DC and the energy loss that we're, we're encountering with every one of those switches and how that contributes to some of the problems we have in, in terms of the environment today. That to me really, really struck me as, as kind of an example in which, you know, one person can have an outsized effect and a kind of a, you know, a butterfly effect later on in terms of just even the unseen ways in which this can have problems later on. Yeah. One thing I really like about science is that it's sort of impersonal in some ways in that, you know, if, if Einstein had never existed, someone else would have discovered relativity. So that makes it kind of impersonal in some ways. But that's not to say personalities don't matter in science because of things like exactly what you're talking about. Had there been different personalities there, they might have developed much more smoothly running technologies and we wouldn't be dealing with a lot of these problems today, potentially. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the reasons, as, as we're seeing now, when people are hesitant to get the COVID-19 vaccine, for example, you know, a little bit of in- misinformation or even or a lot of it, a lot of it or but, you know, like like a tiny kernel of when a scientist says, oh, you know, there's this funny trend in the data of people who have gotten the vaccine. And then you multiply that, you know, by millions of people and you have this small proportion of people, say, for example, that, you know, might might have gotten harmed by it. But then the, the public sort of catches on to that and doesn't recognize sort of the the larger numbers issue. Like myocarditis is an example where there have been a few people who have shown evidence of myocarditis after the vaccine. But if you look at the numbers, getting COVID is much riskier in terms of leaving you with myocarditis than, you know, getting the vaccine. And so, but we don't hear about that. You know, we don't we don't hear about that difference as much. It's sort of the the old uh, line that um, a million deaths is a statistic, but one death is a tragedy because we're focused on these individual cases and these individual people where they were harmed, uh, allegedly, by something that was supposed to be a treatment that ended up hurting them. Just the emotional impact that would have, I think it really hits home with people a lot harder than this idea of a uh, disease being brought around. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So um, we've been sort of talking more generally about the kinds of crimes that happen in the pursuit of science. And they seem to be the the line between I'm doing this for science or for, for, for reasonable good values. And this gets out of hand is clear, but in one case, the, the, the Harvard (laughs) professor who murdered a trustee, it seems like we're almost categorically in a different space. So, so tell us about that story. Yeah. The, uh, the Webster Parchman story. Um, I guess he was one more, the motivation might have been grubby, but he used his expertise in order to commit the crime and try to get away with it, essentially. This was a case at Harvard in the 1840s, where there was a doctor there named John Webster, who was living far, far beyond his means, was running into debt to another person, another Harvard alum, actually, named George Parkman. And he owed Parkman some money. They got into a fight. And without spoiling too much, Webster ended up murdering Parkman. And after that, he used his knowledge, because he taught at Harvard Medical School, he used his knowledge of anatomy to cut up and dispose of Dr. Parkman. You really see it's it's really kind of a lurid case. It was probably the biggest court case in American history up to that point because of two things. I mean, one, it was at Harvard. So everyone was, of course, interested in sort of the juicy, gossipy angle of it. But there was a lot of reasonable doubt at the time because it happened in a medical school, a place where they had a bunch of dead bodies lying around anyway. And especially at the time, uh, medical schools were often involved in the dirty business of robbing graves. So you had people bringing in bodies for illicit reasons all the time. And the prosecution really didn't know if they'd be able to nail uh, Webster for the murder because he denied the whole thing. So what they had to do is they had to bring in some of the anatomists in the school and really have them look at the body parts that they found in the school and show that, oh, you know, this cut right here, that's something only a practice doctor would have known how to do. Because if you do it this way, the obvious way to do it, you're going to break this or this is going to happen. So it's really the introduction in the United States of forensic science and forensic pathology where you're using evidence on a body to try to show how the crime must have been committed. And I compare it in the book to the O.J. Simpson trial and that the O.J. Simpson trial really familiarized a lot of people with DNA evidence back then and kind of made that mainstream. And this had a very similar impact on things like forensic pathology, forensic dentistry, and other things that we now use in court cases all the time. So it's a really interesting case of a scientist committing a crime and using his knowledge to try to get away with the crime. But in this case, the scientist coming back with more science and sort of upending them. So you don't just tell stories that happened 150 years ago. Some of your stories are, are fairly contemporary, and also they're not just limited to men. As a lot of kind of these, 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 the, often we hear these stories, and we hear about you know particularly you know white men from the 19th century who you know become charlatans. But and and the the woman that you feature is not Elizabeth Holmes. 
or at least one of them. Um, and it's Annie Dukin. And I wondered if you could tell us that story because I'd never heard of it before. Yeah, Annie Dukin was a drug chemist at a lab in Massachusetts. And it's always shrouded a little bit in mystery because she really didn't talk about her crimes much afterward after she pled guilty. But essentially, she wanted to be the star of the lab. They were testing drugs for court cases. So someone would get busted with some white powder. They would send it to the lab to figure out what the white powder was, how much of it there was, things like that. And Dukin wanted to be the star of this lab. And so she started testing way more cases than anyone else in the lab was. She was doing thousands upon thousands of tests every single year, sometimes even two or three times more than even the second place chemist in the lab. So she was setting just an absolute torrid pace in order to win glory for herself and try to get promotions at her lab. Uh, unfortunately, it came out that she was faking a large percentage of these tests. She was essentially doing what they call dry labbing, which means she would just look at something and if it looked like crystal meth, she would call it crystal meth, not run any tests on it, and just sort of rubber stamp things and send them along. And she did this for years, a couple years at least, and probably longer than that, based on uh, some evidence that they have. And it caused a gigantic, gigantic scandal in Massachusetts. And eventually they had to throw out something like 21,000 convictions based on the work that Annie Dukin had done. It was the biggest such action in U.S. judicial history. And this only happened in 2012. So this happened less than a decade ago. And in addition to all of these court cases, there were also people who got sent to jail, even though they were innocent, because Annie Dukin essentially framed them with forged evidence. The one case that really comes to mind and that I just I still think about is there was a man named Leonardo Johnson. And he was a drug addict, he was a crack addict, and he wanted to get some money one day so he could score some drugs. And he came up with this rather foolhardy scam, which is that he found a piece of cashew, a little nugget of cashew like the nut, in his home. And to him it looked a little bit like a little tiny piece of crack. So he decided that he was going to sell this to someone else, get some money, and then get drugs with that. Unfortunately, the person he tried to sell it to in this little scam happened to be an undercover cop. So he got arrested for this, went to jail, and was facing charges. However, in his mind, he figured, well, you know, it was just a piece of cashew. They're going to send it to the drug lab. I'm going to get off. It's going to be fine. Except, unfortunately, it went to Annie Dukin. She dry labbed it, didn't actually run any tests. And this man ended up spending time in prison because of this, all because of Annie Dukin. And it's just such a heartbreaking case and goes to show that she was really railroading innocent people. So one of the other themes that you mentioned in the book, I think, is something that we are all reckoning with today. And I, and I don't know what the solution is. And that is the fact that a lot of scientific knowledge was based or or benefited from the slave trade that you know a lot of the specimens in museums and and so forth come from that horrid history. So I wonder if you have a story that kind of illustrates this and and maybe some ideas of how we should reconcile the fact that some of the scientific knowledge was was built on the backs of this horrible feature of our history. 
Yeah, this is something that historians, I think, have been looking at in general now for a few years, where they talk about how the economies, places like England or the United States, were built on slavery in a lot of ways. So that's been kind of coming into the mainstream. What's new and what historians are looking at is how science specifically benefited from the slave trade. And I talk about examples from several different fields, like astronomy, Isaac Newton's physics even. But the big field that benefited from slavery was natural history in that European scientists uh, wanted to go places in South America and Africa, and they wanted to find specimens that they'd never heard about, that to them were new and exciting. But governments then didn't just sponsor scientific voyages. You didn't just apply for grants. So to get to these places, they often had to hitch rides on slave ships. And the example I talked about in the book was a man named Henry Smithman. And Smithman was a really interesting example because he started off as an abolitionist. He started off completely opposed to slavery. But the idea of getting down to Africa and then over to the Caribbean was just so exciting to him that he compromised his morals. He decided, okay, I'm willing to travel down there, travel down from England to Africa on a ship that I know is going to be picking up slaves. But I'm personally not doing anything, so it's okay. And I'm advancing not science, so I think this is going to be okay. So he goes down there, gets down there, and for a while is trying to keep himself completely free of the slavery economy down there. But eventually he runs into some issues. He needs to trade with some people. So he starts trading with the slavers. So again, it's kind of this step-by-step thing where you see him compromising his morals little by little, all because he has this overriding goal of wanting to be a scientist and wanting to find new and more interesting specimens. And before long, he's actually trading slaves himself and sending them off to plantations in the new world in order to get better deals on supplies and things. So he's a case where, I mean, he's not the victim here. The, uh, the, the people who were enslaved, those are the real victims. But he's a case where you just watch someone and you're just kind of horrified about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And you just want to yell at them to stop. But they are just so obsessed. They keep going and they can't help themselves. And I don't know that there is... A, a great solution to this. I mean, one thing is that museums and places that have collected this can be open about it and try to acknowledge it. I think a lot of museums sort of instinct is to pretend it didn't happen, to kind of close ranks and talk about the good that they are doing, as opposed to acknowledging some of the uh, pretty horrific origins of some of the core specimens in the collection. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a great first step. And the story that you're, you've just told is also really highlights one of the main conclusions in your book, which is that the people that you describe, it's in some ways, it's a cop out to just stay, say, well, they were monsters, and I'm not a monster. So this could never happen to me. <laughs> and you quote, Carl Jung saying that an evil person lurks inside all of us, and suggests that only if we recognize that fact, can we hope to tame that evil. So I think that that, you know, to me is is in some ways a, a takeaway. But you also say that, you know, people assume that if you're smarter, then you're also more ethical. But if anything, you say the evidence runs the other way. So I, I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. 
Yeah, so they have basically done studies where they look at people, uh, they use IQ, which is obviously not a perfect correlation, but the, the, the measure that they use, look at people of uh, very high IQ, middling IQ, and lower IQ, and they ask them, you know, anonymously, have you committed the following misdeeds or crimes, things like that. And actually, they find that people with higher IQs have usually done worse things in a lot of ways because they assume that they're smart enough to get away with it, or they are able to cover their tracks better and not get caught. So I think there's kind of this sense that in science, especially, that because we're, you know, people have good intentions, and because they're doing it for the sake of knowledge, the, you know, it's an intellectual pursuit, that it's somehow sort of insulated from, from crimes and from bad deeds, things like that. But I don't think the evidence actually supports that. So you, uh, Come close to concluding your book with a shift in how you interpret one of Albert Einstein's quotes. Um, he said, most people say that it is the intellect which makes a great scientist. They are wrong. It is character. And you talk about how it was after writing this book that you finally got that. I have to admit that when I first heard the quote, I thought, well, you know, that sounds nice, but I, I don't really buy it because I was definitely one of those people who just thought, you know, discoveries are what matter in science. And sure, you hear some sort of lurid horror stories about people who are complete jerks or things like that, but we still revere them because they made these great discoveries. But after writing the book and really thinking about it, as you said, it really changed my view of that quote. And I came to see that character really is an essential part of science. Uh, character is what prevents people from fudging data. It's what prevents people from doing bad things in the name of science. And if people are doing bad things in the name of science, that not only hurts people, but it erodes public trust in science. And science's greatest asset is that trust. It's that people believe scientists. They think scientists are good people. And every time a story like this comes out where someone is harming someone, it can erode that trust a little bit. And I guess kind of to go back to your point at the beginning, then you might say, well, you know, why bring up these stories then? Doesn't that just do science harm? And I don't think that it will if we're just more honest and forthright about actually getting these stories out there. I think the bigger harm would be to bury our heads in the sand and just pretend like these things never happen. Because they have happened, and I think that they are fairly rare. And if we talk about them in an honest way, it's not only showing that we're willing to own up to bad things that have happened in this past of science, but it also provides us guidelines and ways to look out for trouble spots in the future and hopefully prevent these things from happening. And I think that putting them in stories like I did in the book with heroes and villains and stuff like that really helps capture and make those stories hit home. Because if you're just going to list some ethical precepts, some sort of abstracts, thou shalt not, those don't really hit people in the same way as when you're right in the midst of a story and you feel that gut punch and you feel what the victims must have felt in that moment. I think that's much more affecting and much more effective for actually showing the impact of science and for stopping bad deeds in the future. 
So I want to remind our listeners that Sam Keen's book, The Ice Pick Surgeon, Murder, Fraud, Sabotage, Piracy, and Other Dastardly Deeds Perpetrated in the Name of Science, is a great read and at booksellers everywhere. And also includes a bit of uh, a moral compass for those of us who are scientists um, so that it's not just highlighting the bad, but also showing us how to uh, maintain our characters. I look forward to the day when grant committees or tenure committees include character in the point systems (laughs) that they use to evaluate candidates. That'd be great. So Sam Keen, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Dale LaMaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.